Welcome to Wealthy On. I'm your host, Eric Chemi. Today, we are joined again by Bill Pulte. He's the CEO of Pulte Capital. Bill, thanks so much for coming on. I know you were here just a few months ago, not that long ago. We got a lot of viewer requests, a lot of comments coming in to say, have Bill back on. We've got so many more questions. Housing and real estate are such difficult markets to make money on because everybody thinks they can make money on it. And there's a lot of there's a lot of FUD out there. There's a lot of misinformation. So people came back to us and said, can we have Bill back on? We've got more questions we want to ask him. So we appreciate you making the time today. Of course. Yes. Great. That was a good segment. That, that was fun. So, you know, I've got, I've got my list of questions here. I see you're, you're in the office. By the way, where is the office? Where are you today? We're in Florida, in Florida. And I'm in the conference okay. room. Our studio's down, but we're in our conference room. So we're making do. You're making do. You're making do. So the investment strategy, obviously people know Pulte Homes. We talked about that in the last episode and, and your relationship with the company there and how it was good and maybe not so good now and all the stuff happening. So people can It's very good, except for a couple executives. It's very good. Other than that, I'm a big shareholder, big fan of the company. And obviously people can, can go back to that episode to get all the specifics on that and everything that's, that's happening. But people today really want to know, how can I get wealthy? And, and part of it was, what is your current strategy now, right? Now that you're at, at Pulte Capital, right? Like, what are you doing there? And we know there's inflation, right? We know that inflation's not going away regardless of what the Fed says. You just can't, can't worry about that. You've got a big single family business. You've got a big mobile home park business explain how how the strategy works and first how you're doing it and then maybe how other people could try to emulate that on a smaller scale. Of course. Well, like a lot of other people, you know, you have a business. Some people are in doctors, some people are veterinarians, some people are nurses, some people are journalists. Um, in our in our family's business, for example, we were Pulte Homes, uh, which is which was the number one home builder when we were running it. Now it's number four. Um, and basically what we did there was we built homes. My grandfather founded the business. It was a great business. And so we really came up in the housing industry. And so we've really become experts on housing. And as you mentioned, we got, have gotten into a bunch of different areas. At Pulte Capital, what we've really focused on is investing in companies. Air conditioning companies have been our most successful one, frankly, if you can believe that, uh, as well as other products that go into the home, other contractors that go into the home. And why that's important, Eric, is because, you know, usually people in housing think about real estate like you're going to go buy a home and then you're going to flip it. Uh, we take a little bit different of approach, and we've learned this through our Pulte Homes experience, which is that you really want to focus on recurring revenue businesses. And what I mean by that is we are focused on, you know, air conditioning, which, as I mentioned, is a recurring revenue business that goes into the home, right? When your home air conditioning unit goes out, right, you have to get it replaced. Uh, mobile home park business, you own the land and you get paid to own the land or in the case of single family rental you can offer affordable either rent to own or single family homes and so that's kind of the next evolution of our wealth generation frankly uh and we're very very bullish on the space and because of all the reasons you mentioned including inflation i just think it's a complete no-brainer and i think a lot of people are going to get rich in this space in the coming years to come Get when you say get rich in this space specifically, which space do you mean? Do you mean mobile home parks? Do you mean just buying homes and renting them out? Do you like what exactly is the space? It's a great question. I think specifically in housing, that's general, of course, but I think it's the right specific areas in housing. Uh, so yes, I think single family rentals is where people can really generate wealth. I think mobile home parks is where people can really generate wealth. I also think being a strategic home builder, you can make significant wealth. But Eric, 
you know, it's so important that when you go and you build a home, for example, or when you go and flip a home, that you really know what you're doing and where you're doing it. Because you can be very quick to bankruptcy if you go about it the wrong way. And we can talk a little bit about that. But I think that there's going to be many, many millionaires and probably billionaires made in housing over the next 10, 20 years. Let's talk about it right now, right? Like people think they know what they're doing and then they realize they don't know once they've lost a bunch of money. And at that point, it's too late to have learned that lesson. Yeah. So, I mean, let's just take rentals, for example, right? Let's kind of keep it simple. If you wanted to go buy a rental property, what you want to do is you want to have a yield, meaning the amount of income that you're getting on an annual basis. You want that yield on a percentage basis to exceed what a interest rate would. So for example, Eric, if you have a rental property, you want essentially to get 10%, let's say, cash flow per year uh, on a rental property. What I mean by that is if you take the cash flow and you divide it into the value of the, the asset, you want that number to be, let's say, 10%, for example. You want it, what I'm trying to say is you want it to be higher on a percent basis than interest rates. Because if you have- uh, which, which interest rates? Government bonds, any corporate, which interest rate are you looking at? Basically anything that you can borrow debt on. So let's say 10-year rates, hypothetically. Let's say five, 10-year rates. Um, whatever it is your cost to borrow on those real estate properties, Eric, you want to have your interest rates be less than the annual cash flow yield that you're getting. Why is that? Because- Essentially, if interest rates are higher on a percent basis than you're being paid in order to rent out a property, you're actually paying for that property. The fancy word for saying that is negative leverage. I basically just call it losing your ass. And so you want to basically make sure that you have interest rates that are dramatically lower than your annual yield that you're getting on rent. And as I said, it's rent divided into the asset value. But that feels like something easy to say that we would all know, right? Like, well, obviously, you should borrow it. 5% 5% and get a 10% cash flow, right? Like who doesn't know that? You would say that, don't know that? I, would you, I would tell you that a lot of people have justified, and I say probably millions of people have justified doing the exact opposite of that right now. And they've done it because they're underwriting properties or assuming interest rates are going down. And frankly, to your point, yeah, it's a no brainer, but a lot of people aren't calculating it right. And what I'm sad to see is that a lot of people are not truly understanding what is their actual yield. Give you an example. Somebody will have an Airbnb rental property and they'll say, yeah, well, duh, Bill, of course I'm doing that. Well, they're only taking two or three months or they're only taking a year or they're only saying, well, the last year hasn't been there. I guarantee you many, maybe most, maybe, maybe most are actually not meeting the criteria that I just gave you. And I think instead of generating positive wealth, it's going to generate negative wealth. And I'll tell you, Eric, this is why it's so important to focus on the right areas of real estate where you can get those double digit coupons that you for sure will be locking in higher rates than you would get, than you'll have to pay out in interest rates. And um, a lot of people chase these Airbnbs and stuff like that. And I think it's a very dangerous game to be in that business. Why is chasing Airbnbs more dangerous than some of these other businesses that you're talking about? Well, I think that, first of all, it's more of a get-rich-quick thing, get-rich-quick thing. And um, while that works, the probability is that on a sustained basis, it's an extremely low probability that you'll be able to be successful. Now, again, I'm not saying you can't get rich with Airbnbs, but do you want to take that, do you want to take that risk? What I would rather do is go buy either single-family rentals in the, right, in the right areas where you're probably not going to lose money and you can still get a double-digit yield or apartment complexes where you can get a double digit yield, or in the case of mobile home parks where you can get a double digit yield. 
And again, how you're also able to increase the yield is by you're able to go in and make great improvements. And you're able to attract high quality tenants in order to do that. With Airbnb, yes, you can make some improvements, but by and large, you know, you're going to get whatever Airbnb is going to pay you. And again, I think this is kind of the razor's edge between people who are able to generate wealth in the space and people who are more speculative fly by night and trying to get rich quick. And I just would encourage people to, you know, really take the long term view because over time it compounds and it can generate significant wealth for you. You mentioned you're going to see a lot of millionaires and even billionaires with this strategy. So you're saying anybody could start out with a small amount of capital, become a future millionaire, become a future billionaire doing this. What what do they what is the first move they should make? Let's say hundred thousand dollars. Let's say somehow you've saved up a hundred grand. You're like, I'm going to start doing this. Maybe maybe you think they need more in order to get to these higher levels. But what's the first move they should make if they've not actually invested in anything yet? Well, the first thing is to make your first ten grand before you make your first fifty grand, your fifty grand before you must make your first hundred grand and your first million, um, and. That is the key number one. And so if you have any type of money or you've saved up some type of money, I guess what I'm trying to encourage people to do is to do less risky things than like an Airbnb. Again, I'm not saying don't do it. I'm just saying that you can have wealth and do it in a higher probability fashion than investing in uh, an Airbnb. And so to answer your question, let's say you go and buy a mobile home park. And I know people will say, well, I don't have a million dollars by a mobile home park. Let's say a hundred grand mobile home park. You could probably get a mobile home park for a hundred grand, you could probably earn 15 to 20 grand a year on that. Now you could go and you could take those proceeds and reinvest them somewhere else. Could you do that in Airbnb? Could you make more than 15 or 20 grand on a hundred thousand dollar investment? Maybe, but you could also lose your butt on it. And so I guess what I'm saying is I would start very, very small. You know, Jack Dorsey of Twitter fame, you know, founded Square, he always says, start small. And what I'm saying is if you pick these specific areas in real estate and housing and you start small, soon you'll wake up and you'll have a very big portfolio. And that's kind of what we've done. I wonder about someone trying to do these strategies when there's someone like you out there, there's already big guys out there, because like you said, you need to get the right purchase price and the right yield so that you're doing better than your borrowing rates. But at some point, the market will move against you, right? There's like prices will get so efficient that people will keep spending more and more money and outbid you because they're going to get to that natural breaking point. And the only way to buy something is to now to make a bad purchase. Correct. However, I would tell you this, Eric, it's a great question. There's actually higher yield on the smaller properties, number one, so you can actually make more money. Uh, and number two is institutional guys or guys of our size aren't necessarily buying parks in the case of mobile home parks or aren't necessarily buying apartment complexes or an apartment for 50 or 100 or 150 grand, if you follow me, or 200 grand or 300 grand. That is way below institutional level. So when I say about generating wealth, there really is a way whereby people can buy these smaller assets and generate significant wealth. And maybe one day the institutions will come down. You know, we've seen that in private equity. We've seen that in different spaces. And you know this very well being in business and covering business a long time is over time, the institutions, you know, there's so much capital out there chasing these big assets that over time, the institutional capital does come down and does lower their threshold for where they're willing to go. And I do think over time that let's say if you're a retail investor and you're buying some of these assets, you may be able to sell those institutions for a lot of money one day. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. I, I know what you're saying. It reminds me of, I'm reading Peter Lynch's old book from 35 years ago, One Up on Wall Street. And he said, the institutional buyers, 
they're not going to buy very, very tiny stocks, but people can buy tiny stocks, right? You, uh, the, there's an opportunity to make money on the real high growth companies because it's just too small of a dollar amount for the big guys to invest in. So what you're saying reminds me of that. Yes, exactly. That's exactly what I'm saying. And I'm saying that you can do it and you can do it right now. And in my opinion, you can do it in a very risk adjusted way where, you know, if you do it right, you shouldn't lose a lot of money. You should actually be making a lot of money and in a predictable way where you can put your head on the pillow at night and know that you're doing okay. With some of these Airbnbs or some of these one-off locations, you know, I, I would have a hard time sleeping at night. I'm going to ask you something crazy because you just, you took a sip from your coffee and it was a McDonald's cup. And I'm thinking, why would Bill Pulte, who's talking about, you know, millionaires and billionaires, why do you have McDonald's coffee? It suggests that you're that you're still a common everyday man and you don't have some kind of fancy grind your own beans at home thing. What what's going on here? I definitely uh err on the side of uh not thinking that I'm wealthy throughout the day because I think it can really make people go kind of loony in the head. So uh, I don't get any kind of fancy anything. Uh this is actually a Diet Coke from McDonald's. Okay. And okay. I'll tell you that um uh I love the McDonald's Diet Coke. And um, I definitely don't need a Diet Coke machine myself or whatever. Although I'll tell you, though, it's crazy. I think I used to buy these for like a dollar a piece, these Diet Cokes. And now they're worth like now it costs like two dollars and 60 cents or something like that. I mean, inflation is just crazy. And that's also why you can't afford to lose money on these Airbnbs and all these other things. Not the shift between Diet Coke and Airbnbs, but it's like. This is why you can't afford, in my opinion, to lose on these Airbnbs and these type of things is because like you have to hit the right target right now because you're dealing with massive inflation. And in some ways you're dealing with low growth and high inflation. And that's, that's kind of a stagflationary environment in my opinion. And um, in my opinion, you gotta be very smart right now. It's funny that, that you had that because I wasn't planning on, on talking about this, but you mentioned inflation, the Diet Coke, what it used to be. I don't know if you saw this story, it became the cover of the New York Post today where Wendy's yesterday said they're gonna experiment with surge pricing. So, so in 2025, Wendy's CEO said the fast food chain will introduce surge pricing. Hamburgers may cost more, let's say, during the lunch rush hour, for example. That's like, crazy. This is crazy. It's, it's, it says inflation's next frontier. It's exactly what you're talking about. It's crazy, and it's coming. And, um, you know, they got away with so much. When I say they are saying the managerial class, in my opinion, uh, the people who run many of these companies, they think that, you know, they can just put money in their pockets and charge whatever they want and, you know, if they can get EPS for a quarter or if they can put, you know, 10 million bucks more in their pocket, they're not looking at this as human beings on the other side of things, in my opinion. And uh, I think in the end of the day, it will end up bad. But in the meantime, I think a lot of people will suffer as a result of these inflationary policies that these uh, either bureaucrats or, like I said, the managerial class is uh, is enacting upon people. And that's actually why we have such a strong retail investor following on Twitter is because people like that somebody of my... Uh, position, so to speak, is speaking up and saying, you know, this is crazy. I'm, I'm going to get to that in, in a second because that was some of the questions we had coming. In. I want to finish with the housing strategy because you kept saying buying the right places. How do I know what's the right place? And how, let's say, am I or anyone watching or listening, how are they going to be the one that says, I figured out the right place that nobody else has figured out? That's, that's a tricky game. Well, first, you know, it depends what your risk is, but what I would try to do is I would try to look at, if I were looking at in areas, I'd look at where the wealth is really going. That's kind of the, I don't know how to say it, but that's kind of the, that's kind of the number one way. You could look at school districts. You could look at uh, where they're opening Chick-fil-A's. You could look at where they're opening gas stations. You could look at population growth. 
what I try to look at is really where is the wealth going and where are things getting really expensive? Because if you buy things where the wealth is going and where uh, money and and resources are going, naturally it's going to be kind of a lot, rising tide lifts all boats. And so, for example, you know, and again, I'm a little biased, but I wouldn't necessarily be investing in California, even though it has a lot of wealth, but a place like Palm Beach, Florida, I don't see how anybody can go wrong. And again, I'm not talking about West Palm and I'm not talking about speculative properties and this is not investment advice, but I don't see how people generically uh, can go wrong investing in a Palm Beach, Florida or close to a Miami, Florida or close to a Naples, Florida or close to a, um, you know, a Dallas or in Austin. Yes, in the short term, if you buy something that's maybe speculative on the outskirts, you'll be in trouble. But if you go to some of these areas of the Carolinas, for example, these are great locations. This is where somebody who's smart and astute should be going, not buying some, you know, heavy cyclical Airbnb in Phoenix. Yeah, I'm looking up a story. I wanted to make sure I got the details right here. It's 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 what I'm thinking about, you know, population growth, where people are moving those big macro trends. In the last few days, the Toll Brothers CEO said during an investor's call, a data center offered them more than $180 million for a piece of undeveloped property in Virginia that originally Toll Brothers was going to make as the site of apartments and townhouses. I don't know if you saw that story or what you think about that. That's Now we're getting out-competed. I can't even afford to buy a house because a freaking data center that needs to store all of our information and AI models is now going to buy up land and compete against us. Correct. And that's why we're buying a lot of these mobile home parks and redeveloping them. I mean, we're trying to take trailer parks out of the equation and make them into nicer parks where people want to live, not where they have to live. And I think that that's uh, going to be the future. So whether it's data centers or whatever, there's so much capital chasing this land. And then you forget or you remember, depends what party you're in, uh, you know, the immigration situation. You've got the situation where you've got all of these people coming in, right, wrong, uh, whatever you may think it is. But it's just a fact. And what they're doing is they're pressing up the lower, they're bringing up the lower end of things, the pricing on lower end things. And I think you're going to start to see that happen in multifamily and housing. So from, I guess what I'm saying is from every which way, you are just getting nailed with housing. And that's why if you can buy in the right market at the right price with the right yield, I think over the long term, you're going to be a very wealthy person, in my opinion. What are the, what are the trades that you don't make? What are the things that you don't buy? I don't buy things that are far away. I don't buy things in heavily taxed states where the government thinks that the government is the solution when really it's the problem. Uh, I don't buy things that are overpriced. I don't buy things that have low yield. Like I said, you try to, you know, we're, our minimum yield that we're buying is 8 9% on rental properties. We prefer it to be higher. Now, in the case of single family rentals for the right markets, we'll actually buy uh, a lower yield going in, but we'll calculate how we'll calculate the yield is basically factoring in the appreciation. I'll give you an example. We own some Pulte homes in Florida, our family's legacy business. And, um, you know, we're up, as I've been told, and I haven't verified this myself, but I've been told that we're up 30 to 40% on those properties that we bought. Um, you can, you can look at either, uh, you know, looking at, uh, homes in some of these markets like New York or Pennsylvania, nothing wrong with the people in New York and Pennsylvania, or you can look at things in the high growth parts of Florida and buy something. I choose Florida all day long. So when I say good and bad location, you just, you really have to use your head and say, you know, yeah, things are cheap in New York and Pennsylvania and New Jersey and Connecticut, but do I really want to be investing there? Uh, you know, I'd be very careful. As someone who lives in New Jersey and, and sees the taxes all around, uh, 
I have a lot of these conversations at home, right? Like what is the future of, of owning a house here? Where else can you be? Right. So I, I understand, I understand the, the thought process there. And then, um, you're talking about the kinds of debt, the kinds of debt that people can borrow to do this. So I think you see some people they've, they, they get in trouble because they've got the wrong kind of debt or they, they have either too much or not enough. What, what's your approach on that? I think that, you know, with regard to debt, number one, you have to buy a really good asset in order to, to be able to provide uh, for the cash flow to provide for the debt. Uh, what I mean by that is if you buy a good asset that's generating good cash, you can reliably put debt on it. I think where people run into problems is not just when they over leverage, but when they buy, excuse my language, a shitty asset, and then they try to put debt on a shitty asset. Well, that's just a shitty idea. And so I say that somewhat graphically, not to swear, but I say that to get through to somebody that... It's not that debt is a problem. It's that debt under the wrong circumstance is a problem. And so when you look at whether it's mobile home parks or single family rental, you couldn't convince me to put a dollar worth of debt on a bad product. But if you had a good asset, like I talked about, let's say you owned a mobile home park that was worth a couple hundred grand in Florida, generating 50 grand plus in earnings a year, you could probably put some debt on that and sleep good at night. So to me, it really comes down to what is the asset, number one, that you're buying. Number two is what is the cost of capital? Do you have a higher yield than your cost of capital? And number three is what are the covenants on that capital? And I'd say one of those big covenants is maybe number four, which is do not sign recourse debt. Uh, I would not sign recourse debt. You do not want to be personally on the hook for this debt because these banks, especially these big banks, they can be vultures and they will come after you and they will come after your family and they will create all kinds of problems if you can have recourse debt. So you really want to have non-recourse debt. And frankly, people who are not wealthy can have non-recourse debt. You just have to buy the right asset and create a competitive enough auction with debt providers, with local banks, with credit unions. If you do that job, you can have non-recourse debt. And that would be, in addition to those three points, that the fourth point would probably be, you know, a very a very important point, which is do not sign personal guaranteed debt. I don't care how rich or how poor you are. Do not do it. Yeah, it's a good reminder for people who maybe get over enthusiastic about their purchase and they think it's a no brainer. It's going to win. The only way I can do this is is to sign the personal guarantee. So you're saying under no circumstances, I don't care how good you think this idea is, you don't want to take that risk of bankrupting yourself personally. No, because they don't care. And what's going to happen is when there's a recession, which there inevitably will be, the banker, in the case of a bank, will get a call from somebody on the credit committee at the bank and say, hey, you need to call this loan or you're going to be fired. And whether you believe it or not, they're going to they're going to pull that loan before they get fired. And again, this is just my own opinion. And I've seen a lot of people, I've seen a lot of wealthy people sign recourse debt. And so this is not just a problem of people who don't have money. This is also a problem of people who do have money. And I will not under any circumstances, and I have never signed personal debt, and I will never. And when you set that precedent, you set it with banks, yes, you will lose some banks, but you will also, people will know, hey, Pulte in my case, or hey, so-and-so, you know, they're not screwing around and going to take on debt. That's recourse. You, you mentioned the phrase vultures, that the banks can be vultures with, with this debt. I'm sure we'll get a comment from somebody because it's the internet. They'll say, aren't you the vulture because you're taking advantage of people in mobile home parks, you know, people who can't afford and, 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 and like, you know, that they always hear about the, the slum Lords. And is this a version of that? And I ask it 
you know, in, in preparation for the troll comment that will come later? Well, the trolls are always there. But number two is um, if we wanted to take advantage of people, of course you could, but that's not in the interest, in my opinion, of how to create wealth on a long-term basis. Uh, yes, you could in a short-term basis get rich, but the way to generate wealth significantly, in my opinion, over a long period of time like we have done has been to make good, genuine improvements that increase the livelihood and the beauty and the safety of a community. And that, to me, is how you get more money. That is how you get more earnings is by genuinely making improvements, not through just, you know, short-term fix. I mean, even look at like our investment in Pulte Homes. It's like, you know, we could go in and just buy the stock and then try to pump it and dump it. We're not interested in that. We're interested in trying to make the right improvements over a long period of time and build good businesses. So, um, you know, it's a fair comment and it's a fair concern, but you got to really look at the track record and see that, you know, we have really been focused on creating that value. I mean, I'll give you an example. We're in the process in one of the mobile home parks. I mean, you should see some of these things. We're taking what used to be a trailer and making it into a beautiful home. I mean, we're putting in significant money before even ever having substantially raised any type of rent or brought in any type of new tenant or sold any of the new homes. I mean, we're putting new panels on these things. We're putting new asphalt. We're putting in guard gates. I mean, people never even heard of guard gates in trailer parks. Have you ever heard of a guard gate in a trailer park? Nobody's ever heard of it. So we're taking some of these lessons that we've learned in the Pulte Homes type of world, the subdivisions, et cetera, and putting them into what people have traditionally written off as just, you know, uh, trailer parks and really making them into beautiful communities. And I'll just mention one last point on this. Why are we doing this? We're doing this because the zoning regulations are so significant that the only way to get around zoning is to go and do buy stuff that's already zoned for this type of stuff. And mobile home parks are already zoned so you can go in and effectuate positive change and put panels on the side of buildings and, and re-asphalt them and do what you want. I mean, if you try to do that on some other type of, uh, you know, thing that wasn't zoned for that, you know, you wouldn't be able to do it. So I think it's a really creative thing and I think you're going to see more people do it. And at what point do you sell some of these properties or is your goal to just keep buying, accumulating them and taking in the rental cash flow over time? I think we'll keep accumulating. We may go public at some point. I mean, I think, you know, obviously I have a big following on Twitter and uh, a lot of people want to invest with us, which I think is great. But I want to make sure that I perfect the model, both with the single family rentals, with the home building, to the extent that we do any. Um, and with the uh, mobile home parks before we do that. You mentioned the big following on Twitter. You got the big retail investors who who follow what you do, and they're a lot of big fans of, of what your approach. And I know you're you're tweeting about a lot of the meme stocks, you know, what Ryan Cohen's up to. What is the perspective you're getting right now about the everyday person? A lot of them feel like they can't get a fair shake. The system is is set up against them. And, and there's really no hope for them. A lot of them believe that. We're, how are you helping them and what are the conversations you're having? Well, I do think that the system is rigged. Um, if I didn't say, think that the system is rigged, I wouldn't say it. And I do think that a lot of people have gotten a fair, haven't gotten a fair shake. Now, when people say that, they say, well, you know, of course you're you know, just saying that or, oh, you know, you're, you know, whatever conspiracy. Not really. I mean, you tell me, I mean, why are these CEOs making, you know, 10, 20, 30 million bucks a year? And their stocks have either been stagnant or in many cases, you know, they haven't really done anything to really, you know, return anything to the shareholders of substance. I mean, there is so much going on, not just with executive management teams that needs to be talked about, but also these different things in terms of short sellers and in terms of market manipulators, in my opinion, and in terms of, you know, these market makers. I mean, 
I'm not going to sit here and say bad things about market makers, but I will say I think there needs to be more transparency. There needs to be more transparency into who's shorting what stocks. Do they own these stocks that they're being that they're shorting? How are they borrowing them? I mean, there's all these kind of regular restrictions that are on the retail investors, and um, you know you have to report to the IRS and stuff. What you're doing as a retail investor, why why, why is there not more uh, stringent regulations around some of these? You know, they call them dark pools or dark funds where God knows, I mean, who knows what's going on in these things. So I think that the retail investor, that's one aspect of it. The other thing with the retail investor that I think is very interesting is that they haven't really had representation in these public companies and in these public boardrooms. You know, you've got these big bulge bracket uh, firms, whether it's BlackRock, Fidelity or Vanguard. And I'm not saying anything negative about them for purposes of this comment, but they hold tremendous power. And the retail investor doesn't hold a lot of power, at least at the current moment. And I see that changing over time. And I think that that's going to be, I think that's going to be the next thing over the next 10, 20, 30 years. That's going to be quite incredible is the empowerment of the average person to vote their shares, to register their shares and to say, look, I'm a share owner in this. I have just as much of a right to certain things as BlackRock or Fidelity does. They, they can vote, but they'll have one vote or maybe a hundred votes or a thousand votes and BlackRock will have a billion votes on, on, on until that, that changes. Until that changes, but it, I think I think it may change. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised to see people, you know, either try to move their different shares out of BlackRock or Fidelity over time, or there'd be big campaigns. I mean, uh, over enough time, I think things are going to happen, and uh, people are sick and tired of it, you know. And you, to your point, they you can you can only have a hundred or a thousand at a time, but you know, look at GameStop. I mean, look at how many direct registered shares there are. And talk about people standing up and saying, we're not going to take it anymore. What do you think about the whole GameStop movement, the example of it, the other stocks that, that now we're seeing have this, you know, let's say consumer takeover, right? The retail takeover. A lot of people can make money. A lot of people can lose their shirt. Like we talk about in real estate. What's your advice for those people who, who want to play that game, but, but you could, you know, you could lose a lot of money if you do it wrong. Yeah, I think you have to be very careful gambling. And I wouldn't tell people to go invest in GameStop if you're just trying to make a quick buck. You know, in my case, I believe in Ryan Cohen. I think he's going to try to figure out how to turn this thing around. Um, and I think he's done a nice job of that. He's completely gutted a lot of the expenses. It'll be interesting to see. I don't know if you know this, Eric, but GameStop's got over a billion dollars worth of cash on the balance sheet. Most people don't even know that. I mean, you could do a lot of damage with a billion dollars. I've encouraged Cohen publicly on Twitter to invest in a high, you know, I you know, I have to practice what I preach, right? I can't sit here and say buy a recurring cash flow business and then not advise him to do it. So I've said publicly, I really hope he buys a cash flow positive business. I really do still hope he does that. We'll see. Time will tell. Um, but, you know, I'm invested in GameStop. I'm going to continue to be invested in GameStop. And I think there's going to be way more GameStops going forward. And we've started to create stock community groups. I don't know if you've seen this, but we've got tens of thousands of people in our own communities on X, on Twitter. Uh, between AMC, GameStop, Bed Bath & Beyond, Pulte Group, uh, with retail investors just kind of banding together, talking about the, the stocks. And I'll tell you this, one last final thought on this is a lot of these retail investors do a lot of really good due diligence. And it's kind of scary what kind of information people can find out about out there. And I really like it. Uh, and I think that you're going to see, I'm not saying the analysts will go away on Wall Street, but what I'm saying is, the quality of information, I think, over enough time with journalists like yourself who are entering into new media, coupled with the retail investors, I think that you're going to see more and more of these type of people than the traditional so-called mainstream media. And 
you had a rally a couple months ago in December. You've got another rally planned in a couple of months in May. So talk about what, what is the rally? Who's coming and, and what is happening there? Yeah, it's quite crazy. We had 250 people today, if you can believe that this $500 to come in town. We set up a huge rally. I had actually come out of pocket for the cost for it, but they paid $500 to come and meet us and talk with us about stocks. And it was crazy. It was amazing. It was an amazing, amazing time. There's a guy who was dressed up in an ape costume, if you can believe it, of all things, like an actual ape. I mean, people are fed up and they're making this fun and it's a movement. It's a total movement, this whole stock retail movement. And obviously I've gotten to be well known on Twitter for philanthropy, but I think that the stock thing is very much philanthropy and getting people wealthy and getting people rich. And, um, you know, we have the stock thing going on where people are showing up. Like I said, 250 people in an airport hangar it was insane. We're going to have 350 people, maybe more in Atlanta in May. We're actually doing that around the Pulte Group annual meeting, if you can believe that. So a lot of these people are going to be shareholders in the company. And we're going to Atlanta where Pulte Group is going to be. Um, and this is the future. You know, they used to have the Berkshire Hathaway meetings in the day where you'd go and you'd go to Berkshire Hathaway. Well, we're going to the Pulte Group annual meeting now. I hear they're so worried about it. And again, this is third hand and speculation, so I don't know if it's true, that they're so worried about it that they're thinking of going virtual this year, which is a very big disappointment because, you know, we should be embracing these retail shareholders. If somebody owns 10 shares of Pulte Group, they should be able to go into headquarters and, you know, your name shouldn't have to be Pulte or BlackRock or Fidelity or Vanguard to go do it. So I think what we're doing is very exciting. And I think in the years to come, you'll see, you know, probably hundreds, if not thousands of people come to these different rallies and, and people try to take back the power from you know, the handful of people that are running these big companies. So what's next for you? I hear all this and I feel like like you could be the next Trump-esque figure, right? Real estate, you know, he was in a real estate family, had a big media presence, became an elected official, right? You got a lot of the same vibes that, that I'm hearing. Yeah, I'd rather die than run for office, <laughs> at least right now, that's for sure. Um, but I'm just having fun. And the reality is this this retail crowd thing is very exciting because, you know, it's one thing for me as a philanthropist to give away my money on Twitter. And I've given away millions of dollars literally just on my Twitter account. It's another thing to then go and uh, get other people to understand about finance and stocks and become financially well-versed and then them be able to help other people. I've always said Twitter philanthropy will never be successful or now X philanthropy will never be successful until I – until it exists without me. That's the only point when the, when it can go on and direct giving can go on in a viral, in a very viral, organic fashion, where if somebody's dying of cancer in Utah, somebody in Georgia can help them. I mean, that needs to exist independent of Bill Pulte and independent of everybody. So to me, it's like we need to get people rich. And, and I'm not saying I can get people rich, but, but you know, I have an opinion about how to, in my own opinion. Um, but we need to get people rich and we need to get people rich so they can help people at a higher and bigger level. And, you know, the churches used to rely on those churches, which I'm a big fan of churches. And I think, you know, we need a revival of churches in this country. But the churches used to take care of people. These days with, you know, things being so secular and stuff, people also, in my opinion, need to get wealthy so you can help other people. Because we can't just rely, at least in the short term, we can't just rely on the churches. We have to help each other. And so I view the retail investor thing as very much an offshoot of the philanthropy thing. And, you know, we'll see where it goes. But in the meantime, I just say we're just trying to help one person at a time. And over over enough time, if we help one person a day or, you know, in this case, we're helping whatever, five, ten people a day, it adds up. And now I think we're at four or five thousand people that have been helped. People who are dying of cancer or, you know, people who've lost 
loved ones in tragedies. I mean, I could give you the stories. It's crazy what, what happens in the world. That, that That's amazing. And I appreciate your sentiments and we can have a whole other podcast episode about the, the breakdown of families and churches and everyone's living in an isolated life. So they rely on the government and the government thinks it's going to help. And then we all become wards of the government. Okay. Well, no one's here to help you. The government will help you. And then you get stuck in that trap and they raise taxes on everybody else. And then they don't give, and then it, it goes to where we are now, right? This highly secular culture where yeah, people aren't as generous maybe as they used to be. And maybe these tighter knit family and, and religious groups. Correct. Correct. Yeah. It's going to, it may get worse before it gets better, but we'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. And the human race always does. You know, I was with Dr. Ben Carson yesterday. I don't know if you know him, the HUD sec former HUD secretary. And we're talking about a lot of the issues we talked about. And he said something to me about how, you know, and I don't know whether people believe in God or not, but either way, it was an interesting point. He said something about how, you know, God saved Sodom and Gomorrah. And, you know, there was only 10 or 12 people in, in, in that situation. And he's like, so I think God can handle this one. And, and I would say the same thing. I mean, whether it's inflation or whether it's the, the breakdown in the moral character or the lack of churches or lack of family, I think all in due time will figure itself out. I appreciate it, Bill. I appreciate it. It's nice to see you again. Everyone obviously Thank can you follow you on, on Twitter, X, see what you're up to. You, you're always posting. You've always got you know, money being given away somewhere that you're at, you know, so, you know, a rally, a public appearance or you know, whatever you're investing in. So people definitely should keep following you there. And, uh, and we'll talk soon, Bill. Thank you. You got it, Eric. Take care. Thanks again to my guest, Bill Pulte, for joining me here on Wealthy. On If you like this episode, of course, please like it, subscribe, share it, comment, forward it around, pass it to others so they can learn as well and more people can get this content and enjoy. And if you're thinking about investing, your family's finances, your future, how that all is going to work out for you, you can go to WealthyOn.com. We've got a short form there, connect you with some investment professionals that, that we endorse, that we think can do a good job. There's no commitment, no obligation, there's no cost. You can just have a conversation with them. And that's a free public service at WealthyOn.com. And of course, also check out all the other shows at WealthyOn. We've got a lot of programming going on right now, so you can check all of that out at the website. Thanks again for watching, for listening. I'm Eric Chemi. We'll see you next time.